We'll be wrapping up our time in the fifth chapter of John, so if you would please join me there. We'll be starting off in verse 37, and I'd like to begin by reading and praying this morning. So John chapter 5, verse 37 We're going to read through the end of the chapter. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of this chapter, I Lord, I just confess how much I need your help this morning to convey this word to your people, this truth. Lord, that I wouldn't just preach a sermon with a low goal, but that we would hear your word. I pray that I would be able to speak clearly and faithfully, Lord. Those are things that I can only do by your help. And I pray that your word this morning would be received well, And that can only be done by your help. So from start to finish, Lord, we need you. Please, meet us in this time as we turn to your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you know, John is laser-focused on the topic of believing. This gospel, you've heard me repeat over and over, and you will continue to hear me repeat is written so that you may believe. That is the point of this whole gospel. We've discussed early on, but just as a refresher, that the Greek word for believe is used in this gospel 98 different times. Now that might sound a lot, and we might just have the assumption that probably all the gospels use this word that many times, but that's compared to 11 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, and only 9 times in Luke. Friends, that is 64 more times that John uses this, gospel, this word in this gospel than in the other three combined. Further, one commentator points out how John does not use the noun form of the word pistio, that's the Greek word for believe, but instead every one of those 98 instances of this word It is used in the verb form, which that would just be trivia. 
But the point of me bringing that up is that John really wants people to understand belief not as a concept, but that believing is an action. So, he wants to write this gospel. He wants to put forth proofs and evidences of the life and ministry and work and identity of Jesus. And he wants the reader to find it so compelling and so true that they will not just think it would be nice to understand what believing is, but that they would in action believe in Jesus so that they can be saved. It's the whole point of this gospel. From start to finish, every single line of this gospel has that in mind. But John knows something about the human heart, about as well as any of us do. That in its natural state, the human heart is hard, cold, and unwilling to believe in Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The natural man, apart from Christ, is hostile to God. And why? Because he is unwilling to submit to God's law. He doesn't want to. Therefore, he doesn't. To paraphrase for our context of belief, the natural man, apart from Christ, does not believe in Christ. And why? Because he is unwilling to believe in Christ to the effect that he is unable to believe. He cannot because he will not. Let me ask you, have you ever stood perplexed at unbelieving friends or family members, loved ones, people that you know? Have you ever stood perplexed at their unbelief? Have you ever wondered, maybe out loud or to yourself, how can you not believe? You see my life. If you don't believe the Bible, at least believe the work that Jesus has done in my life. I used to be ruined. I was horrible. I was this terrible person. How can you not see how different I am and attribute this to God? But instead, it's often attributed to you just making better choices and really starting to get your life together. It's that church stuff, huh? But we don't ever look at that as proof that God is real and He works in people's lives. Now why is that? Why is that enough, not enough to convince them? It's because they do not want to believe. There is unwillingness to believe. Think of your own life before Christ. Why did it take you so long to finally come around to believing in Jesus? How many times did you hear the gospel and you were unwilling to come to Christ? How many times did you maybe even sit in church and yet you were as far from the Lord as one could be? It's because you were unwilling until the day that the Spirit of God came like the wind and made you willing, gave you life, gave you ears and eyes and made you willing to believe. And so you came to Christ, not kicking and screaming, willingly. How did that happen? It was God's Spirit. And if not for that action of the sovereign God in our hearts, friends, 
right now we would still all be unwilling. We would still be unwilling. The unwillingness to believe is embedded in all of our sinful human nature. This isn't unique to a certain subset of people. In our natural state, we are unwilling to believe. And many people justify their unwillingness to believe. How? By saying that there just isn't enough evidence to convince them of the truth. There's just not enough proof. I need some proof. But the thing about an unwillingness to believe is that it's never actually about a lack of proof. I'll prove it to you. Let's take, for example, the Bible. Unbelievers love to attack our Bible, don't they? They try to discredit the Bible by what? Saying it's so old, it was written by man, you know? How can you trust that Bible? Or who's to say that it hasn't been changed over the years? But this is all smoke and mirrors. It is hiding an unwillingness to believe that God's Word is true. Did you know that there is more evidence for the authenticity of the Bible than any other ancient literary work? More evidence for the Bible than any other ancient literary work. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. 5, 000, over 5,000, approaching 6,000. These are early copies of the original writings of the New Testament. This is overwhelmingly more than the number of manuscripts of other ancient works. You might be familiar with Homer's epic poem, The Iliad. Maybe some of you had to read it in school. Did you know that there are fewer than 2,000 manuscripts of that work of literature? But people have no problem attributing the Iliad to Homer. There's no problem. No one's saying we had to read the Iliad in high school, you know, but you know, I just, I don't know if we can trust that what it says is actually what Homer wrote. It's been copied so many times. It was written by man. You know, who can trust that this is actually what Homer wrote? It's not about proof. Jesus' own life is proof of the reliability of our scriptures. He was prophesied for hundreds of years. Have you ever thought about this? Hundreds of years before Jesus came, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and it all came true. So many details in and around his life were prophesied. His virgin birth, his place of birth, his uh, ministry of, of miracles and his teaching authority, even his suffering, burial, death, burial, and resurrection. It was all prophesied. And it's not like 75% of the prophecies came true. Every single prophecy about Jesus came true. Every one of them. It happened. Did you know that the tomb is empty? You can't go dig up Jesus' bones. And it is a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth and died on a cross. But where is he? The tomb is empty. It's helpful to think of this text of Scripture as sort of a courtroom. I've been saying that it's not about proof, because there's so much proof. And it's because that's exactly what Jesus is dealing with in this passage. Last week, the text that we were looking at, the section of this text that we were looking at, 
Jesus is offering all of these witnesses that are corroborating his statements. They are saying what Jesus is saying is true. And he was saying that it was all the Father's testimony. John the Baptist bore the Father's testimony. The works that Jesus performed, that was the Father's testimony. The Scriptures, that was the Father's testimony. Friends, these are as reliable as witnesses get. So I think of this text as sort of a courtroom setting. Jesus at first has been defending His deity, and He did that by calling all of these witnesses to the stand who said, yes, that's, He is who He says He is. He is who He says He is. He is who He says He is. And on top of that, Jesus began by demonstrating his deity. Do you remember? How did he do that? He miraculously healed this man, this invalid, by the pool. Almost 40 years an invalid, healed like this. And then Jesus defended his deity. But now today he's going on offense. And he's going to prove to the Jews. It's not about all the proof. You have proof. That I am who I say I am. The problem is you are unwilling to believe. You don't want to. He's going to go on offense this morning. We're going to look at four charges against the Jews for their unwillingness to believe. Despite the unmountain of evidence that validates all of his claims. And friends, these aren't just against the Jews. This is wildly applicable for our day and age. And we'll see how. First charge is that they do not know God. From verse 37b, the second half of the the verse, he says, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you. I want you to notice here that there's this a sharp turn in Jesus' discourse here in this verse. He's, He's largely been speaking in positive terms, stating truths, and just giving them as facts, speaking about himself and then calling these witnesses. But now in verse 37, he turns his focus directly to the Jews. He uses the phrase, do not, seven different times in the rest of this, these verses that we're looking at. And then he shows that he's speaking directly to the Jews because he uses the word you 22 times here. All of that to say that Jesus is not speaking of himself anymore, but now he's speaking directly to the Jews. And guess what? He's using soul-piercing words. The way that Jesus speaks in this final section flies in the face of the more human than God, more nice than holy, false Christ that is so popular today. The Jesus of today would never talk like this. But the true Jesus does. We have this idea that the way to speak lovingly about issues is to speak with great ambiguity, not with any clarity. Don't address issues head on. Well, here is love incarnate. And what is he doing? He is directly addressing the spiritual deadness of the Jews. His language is piercing. It is soul-searching. And it is deeply convicting. This part of the discourse reminds us that Jesus is never actually on trial. We are. Jesus is talking about the Father here. 
His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, you don't have his word abiding in you. This is a way of saying that they don't know God. You've never seen him, you've never heard him, you don't have his word, you don't know anything about God. You don't know him. But doesn't Jesus know that these Jews standing before him represent the religious elite of the day? How can they not know God? If they don't know God, surely nobody knows God. How can this be? Y'all ask great questions, you know. Thank you. The Pharisees, as you know, they're often charged in the Gospels with being more concerned with outward religion than inward transformation. If you remember from Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. One of the reasons he gives for these woes is that they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And then he gives an example. How do you know? What does that look like? He says that they make their phylacteries broad and fringes long. Now I know a phylactery is not a common word used today. Mom, have you seen my phylacteries? So what is a phylactery? It was a small cube. It was a little box that was attached to a long leather strip. And they would wrap it around their fingers, around the hand, all the way up the forearm. And inside of that little box, there were four passages from Torah. One of those passages was Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was the Shema. The Shema is a prayer that the Jews would pray twice a day, in the morning and the evening. It was a confession of faith. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. This is where they get the Shema from. Hear, O Israel. That's Shema means hear. So it's from the first word of, of, this, um, of this passage. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now hear this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. See, they'd have one phylactery around their arm because the text says bind them around your hand. And then they would have one wrapped around their head because it says that they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So they take this very literally. But they very conveniently looked over verse 6. that said, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What a picture this is, these phylacteries, of how wrong the religious elite of the day got it. They had the scriptures wrapped around their hands, around their heads, but they were not in their heart. Jesus says in verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you. How ironic. How tragically ironic. They have his word wrapped around their arms and around their heads, but it's not in their heart. They carry it with them all day. How can you say that you love God, that you know God, but his word is not in your heart? How can these Jews not have the word in their heart? 
they know Torah better than anybody. They would memorize large sections of Scripture. Well, here's how Jesus knows at the end of verse 38. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. If they were really followers of the teachings of Moses, if they were true Israelites, if they really knew God and had his words stored up in their hearts, they would immediately be able to recognize that Jesus is who he says he is. But instead, they have been given evidence that that's who he is, and they don't believe it. And they give evidence that None of those things are true about them because they do not believe Jesus. They don't know him. They don't know God. They don't have his word in his heart, in their hearts. And this unbelief, it works on two levels. You see, first, they don't believe the content of Jesus' claims to be true. They don't believe his words. I don't believe you. All the things that he's saying, I don't believe it. And because they don't believe his words, the other level of this is, Since I don't believe his words, I can't believe in him. I'm rejecting what he has to say. So let's put this into perspective. Think of what's happening here. Jesus has demonstrated his deity in front of them. They see this man who has been an invalid for over 38 years. Jesus speaks to them of his defense of his deity, that the Father testified of him, that John the Baptist did, that the miracles do, that the Scripture is pointed to him. And none of it is enough to convince them. None of it is enough for them to say, okay, I believe. Do you see why I say that it's not, unbelief is not about having enough proof? Because there's proof of plenty. Unbelief is unwillingness. It's, I don't want to believe you. They had all the evidence that one could have, and they still rejected Christ. Friends, if they're in front of God in the flesh, and they're witnessing the miracles, and they're hearing His words, and they cannot be moved by that evidence, how much more true is that today? How much more true is it today that people are not going to be convinced by a wealth of evidence. They're not going to be convinced by these things. Now, proof is good. And we we want to have the evidence. And we want to be able to substantiate our claims. These things are wonderful. When they dig up all of these things in these archaeological dig sites, it's great. But it's not saying to us, okay, it's, it's now you can believe in Jesus because of this. We believe... And we see it, and we say, yeah, that's just confirming what I already know to be true. But for an unbeliever who is unwilling to come to Christ, it doesn't matter how much you prove to them. You know, the, rich, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in the flames, and he says, would you please send to them, send to my family, a messenger, send, send someone to my family. Tell them that they're going to go to hell. Do you know what's said to them? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe if someone rises from the dead. If they're not going to be convinced by this, nothing is going to convince them is the point. It's not 
about proof. Evidence is not the problem. The problem of the human heart is unwillingness. That brings us to the second charge that Jesus brings against the Jews. They don't have eternal life. Look at verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here, unbelief is very clearly seen as unwillingness to come to Jesus. This is another surprising charge, isn't it, that is being made against a a group of people who were very eagerly anticipating Messiah. They wanted Messiah to come. They were awaiting His arrival. They knew the Scriptures that prophesied of His coming. Jesus even says here that they do indeed search the Scriptures. This is true. The word here for search, it means to examine to investigate. In other words, they're not just reading the Bible. They're not just memorizing it. They're studying it closely, considering the intricate details of every word. In our language, we would say something like, you preach expository sermons. You do inductive Bible study. The Pharisees, in other words, knew their Bibles very well. But, just as we saw exemplified in the wearing of the phylacteries, all of the learning was for naught because they rejected the one the Scriptures speak of. The subject of this charge here is eternal life. And it's considered in two different ways. First, in in the way that the Jews thought that they attained eternal life. And second, in the way that they actually rejected eternal life. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them, the Scriptures, you have eternal life. The Pharisees believed that it was the study of Scripture itself that would yield the reward of eternal life. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, he points out that the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish oral tradition, it was put together somewhere around the 2nd century B.C., And it's a collection of oral teaching from the rabbis. It's rabbinical teaching. So it's a very important document because it gives us insight into how the Jews believed, how they taught, what they thought the Scriptures meant, because it was the oral tradition. Listen to what it says in the Mishnah. More law, more life. If he has gotten himself teachings of Torah, he has gotten himself eternal life. Isn't that amazing? They thought that they would have life by learning the law. So they studied the scriptures diligently. In other words, the Pharisees thought to achieve eternal life through their own religious effort, through religious activity, By the study of Scripture, these Jews prove that you can be a student of the Word and miss the entire point of Scripture. Completely miss what the Scripture's about. We see that by Jesus saying, and it is they that bear witness about me. You would think that with all of their study of Scripture, all of their eager expectation of Messiah, that when they came face to face with the Word... Isn't that what John said he is? The Word became flesh. 
you would think that they'd be immediately able to discern this is the Son of the living God. We've studied it. Jesus even says that the Scriptures bear witness about Him. Surely you've noticed this, Mr. Pharisee. How could you miss this? After all, the disciples, the nobodies from chapter 1, do you remember what Philip told Nathaniel when he went to bring him to Christ? From chapter 1, verse 44, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And then he identifies him. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What's the difference? How can a nobody like Philip, how can he understand this is what the Scriptures are about? He's the one the Scriptures are pointing to. How can he understand that? But these very studious, very intelligent, very well-respected religious leaders, they completely miss it. They were studying the Scriptures with their heads and not with their hearts. They were doing a very good thing in the very wrong way. Friends, this, this should be a real caution to us. Especially in the church where we want to take the Bible seriously. We want to come and hear the word rightly divided, and we ought to. We want to be real students of the scripture, and we should. But let us tremble at this recognition that it is entirely possible to study the word your whole life and miss the point. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be me. I would hate for that to be said of me. Lord, Lord, did I not study your word? Depart from me, I never knew you. That is the path that these men are on. When you study the Bible without your heart, you're just like these Pharisees who cannot recognize the glory of the one to whom the Scriptures point. See, he says, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Isn't this just tragic? My ESV has the word refuse here. Some of your Bibles say you are unwilling to come to me. Unbelief is not unbelief because of a lack of understanding. It is an unwillingness to believe the truth, even when confronted with the truth, even when studying the truth. That heart is unwilling to come to Jesus. Now see this. It is not unbelief for a lack of desire for eternal life. You know, sometimes we think, well, don't you want to go to heaven? Yes, everybody wants to go to heaven. But unbelievers largely believe they are going to heaven. People in false religion believe they are going to heaven. Why? Because of their religious activity. These Pharisees here, they wanted eternal life. But they were not willing to pay the price of admission, which was belief in Jesus. Instead, they thought they were going to take the hard way to eternal life by devoting themselves to the arduous study of the Scriptures, insisting that this is where they would find life, just by the study of the Word. 
But I, it's tragically ironic, once again, that they would have found eternal life by searching the Scriptures if they would come to the one that the Scriptures are about. This is common today, too. People think they will find eternal life in various forms of religious activity, but not in the one place that we have been guaranteed to find it. People think we have eternal life because we go to church. You, you go to church, you're, you're one of those good old boys, you'll have eternal life. If you just try to kind of be a moral person, try to do the right thing, do one nice deed a day, that's all that it takes to have eternal life. But what does Jesus say? You don't have eternal life unless you come to Him. And you can do all of the good religious activity in the world. You can do all of it. You can devote your life to it. But if you have not come to Jesus, you don't have eternal life. No matter how convinced you are that you do. Once again, this should make us tremble. It's like Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.7, they are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning. Always amassing to yourself more knowledge. Friend, do you know that the more truth you hear, the more truth you are accountable to? If you have no intention of applying any of the truth to your life, if, if just hearing the truth is what you think will get you saved, friend, you are sadly deluded. You are self-deceived. The only thing that yields eternal life is belief in Jesus. That's it. The third charge that Jesus brings, verse 41, they do not love God. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Jesus said back in verse 34 that the testimony that he receives is not from man. And now he says that he doesn't even receive glory from man. I do not believe that Jesus is saying that People cannot give him glory. We're told a number of times in Scripture to give him glory. But I believe what he's saying is that he does not receive glory from natural man who is unwilling to come to him. Some of your Bibles even have the word man instead of people, and I think that's more helpful. He does not receive glory from man because man in his natural state does not glorify Christ. He does not glorify Christ for who he is because he wishes that Christ were something different. Had the Jews been given the Messiah they truly wanted, well, they would not have a problem glorifying that Christ. But they don't much care for the Christ the Father sent. Since they don't glorify him or honor him, Jesus says it is evident that they do not have the love of God within them. <laughs> These two things are inseparably connected. Love for God and receiving His Son. But isn't this just another shocking charge against the Jews, the religious elite? If you were in the crowd that day, 
you would have a hard time believing this about them. Those guys, no way. They teach Torah. They pray in the synagogues. Are you serious? They don't love God? Their whole life is devoted to this. Their whole life has been given to this. Have you seen how long their phylacteries are? And if you remember, I quoted from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 that literally reads, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They have that scripture written on a piece of parchment and tucked away in a little box that they have tied to their arms. But it's not written on their heart. And it's evidenced by the fact that they reject Christ. Verse 43 helps us. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. How can you say you love the Father if I've come in the Father's name and you don't receive me? You don't love God. You can't. The Son of God was sent by God to come in the name of God, and the Jews still rejected Him. They claimed to love God, but when God sent His Son to His people, they did not receive Him. So to reject the Son of God is to reject God the Father. You cannot have the Father without the Son, but if you have the Son, you have the Father also. This is so important because of the many Christian cults that we have today, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So if you see Jesus and you say, no thank you, you are rejecting the Father who He radiates the glory of. Do you see how that works? You can't reject the Son and claim to have the Father. They are one. But as though this weren't already bad enough, Jesus shows another layer of how damning false religion is. Listen to what he says. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. It's not that these people wanted no God or no Messiah. It's that they didn't want this one. They would rather have fallen for a false Christ, a cheap trick. They would rather have had a lie than the truth. There's an old song that says, Lie to me. Tell me everything is all right. And that's exactly their mentality. Lie to me instead. And this has always been the case. Listen to Jeremiah Chapter 5, verse 30. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their own discretion. My people love to have it so. They love to have the prophets prophesy falsely. They love to have the priests rule at their own discretion, apart from the word of God. Paul tells us that in the last days, people will store up for themselves teachers with itching ears who are going to tell them all the things that they want to hear. They love to have lies instead of the truth. And because of this, they are unwilling to come to the truth. 
They would rather believe the lie of how they can earn salvation with good works by being this really good religious person, by believing that all roads eventually lead to heaven. They would rather have that than the truth and the guaranteed source of everlasting life. And Jesus surprises us here with something that maybe we don't expect. Verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is the fourth charge, is that they are glory chasers. We quoted from Matthew 23 earlier where Jesus said that the Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others. And that that's what it's all about for them. They love the place of honor at feasts. They love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They view godliness as a means of gain. They, gain, they can gain respect, honor, admiration, power, and more by being more righteous and religious than everyone else. You see, they would have loved a Messiah that would come and say, you know, you guys are doing great. Where can I help? Instead of the one who called them hypocrites and said that they don't know or love God. They were not after God after all. They were after all of the benefits of religion. False religion at its heart is about practicing your righteousness before others. Wanting to be validated by other people as a good person, as a moral person, as a spiritual or enlightened person. That is what false religion is about. If you want to know if you have bought into this false idea of religion, search your heart and ask, whose opinion matters to me more? Is it what the community thinks of me? Is it what my peers think of me? Is it what my family thinks of me? Or is it what God thinks? Friend, that'll tell you if you've been practicing your religion for the glory of man. False religion is full of empty platitudes that sound really good, but they do nothing for your soul. False religion is full of empty, outward activity that serves more to draw attention to yourself than to draw you closer to God. Make no mistake, all of us are this way. We all belong to a false religion outside of Christ. People like to say today, I'm not a very religious person. Have you ever heard that? I'm not very religious. That's a lie. It's impossible. Because man is deeply religious. We make a religion out of everything. Sports? Little League is a major religion around here. Work? You can make your religion, your work, your work ethic, drugs, alcohol. Atheism is a religion. Even family. You can turn good things into a false religion. Then if people don't follow your religion the same way that you follow your false religion, if they fail your homemade test of orthodoxy, then they're condemned. They're doing it wrong. The question is not whether or not you are religious. Everyone is religious. The question is, do you have the right religion? 
Does your religion bring you closer to Christ? Or is your religion the barrier to you believing in Jesus? All false religion is focused on bettering you. It puts man at the center. Man's effort, man's glory, man's ability. And it's all about presenting yourself to the world as good and right and moral. But you know what? In Christianity, there is no human glory to be achieved. We are told that the way up is down. If you want to be exalted, humble yourself. You remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. These are not traits that man finds appealing or interesting. Hey, come to our thing. You're going to be humbled. You're going to be in sackcloth and ashes. You're going to cry. You're going to be broken. You're probably going to be persecuted. You want to come? No, I don't think I will. I think I'll go and make my own way. Instead of blessed are the poor in spirit, false religion says blessed are the independent. Instead of blessed are the meek, blessed are those who have high self-esteem. Instead of blessed are the persecuted, blessed are you if you are loved. That is what false religion sounds like. And when these are the things that you pursue, you are entirely unwilling to come to Christ. Why? Because He demands that you lose all of those ambitions. It's all out the door. The Christian faith is not external. It is not lived for the praise of others, but for and unto the glory of God. Listen to Romans 8, Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You want to know something? If that text is true of you, you are a true Jew. You are a true Jew. If you have been circumcised in heart, if the Spirit of God resides in you, because you are the true people of God. True religion is not seen in standing tall and proud as though you have it all together. True religion is not seen in literally laying prostrate on the floor as a demonstration of how contrite you are. True religion is seen in the posture of the heart that comes empty-handed to the foot of the throne of grace, knowing that you don't belong there and you have nothing to offer this good and gracious King. I love the way that A.W. Pink said this, and I cannot improve upon it. Quote, Speaking of Christ, he needs emptiness for his fullness, sinfulness for his holiness, sinners for his salvation, death for his life. And he who can make out his case of being lost and helpless gets all. He who can make the best case for being lost and helpless, and having nothing to bring, nothing to contribute, nothing to offer God, He's the one who gets all of it. Isn't that amazing? That's our Christian faith, my friends. 
It's not who has it all together. Who can tithe the most? Who is going to give us the best reputation in the community? It's who is lost and destitute and broken and sin-riddled and sin-sick. That's the one that Jesus says, come to me, you're mine. I love that about our faith. It is not the religious man who recounts to God in prayer all of the many ways that he's better than everyone else that is justified. It's the man who makes himself of no account before God and begs and pleads for his mercy. It's the one who is humbled, who is lifted up. And we're going to close by looking at the prosecuting attorney. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Though Jesus is the judge who will judge them on the last day, it's going to be Moses who prosecutes them. Could you imagine how assaulting to their ears this must be? Later on in chapter 9, they're going to call themselves disciples of Moses. This is their life, is the law of Moses. And you're going to tell me that that's going to be what prosecutes me on the last day? The very thing I live my whole life for is going to be what accuses me in the end? There's no way. There is no way. Moses was everything to the Jews. Think about it. He gave the law. He went up to Mount Sinai. He spoke with God face to face as one does with a friend. Moses led them out of bondage. He parted the Red Sea. Do you mean to tell me that Moses is going to be the one accusing these Jews? This is the religion that they claimed to hold to, in which all of their hope is found, Jesus says. You have set your hope on Moses. Turning, this is going to turn out to actually be the very thing that condemns them in the end. We quoted from the Mishnah earlier that stated, More law, more life. But now Jesus is telling them that it is the law that will actually be what accuses them on the last day instead of giving them life. Jesus goes as far as saying that they don't even believe Moses. How can you possibly say this, Jesus? Where is your proof? Verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. In other words, here's the evidence that they don't believe in Moses. They don't even believe what they claim to believe. They don't even believe what they have staked their whole life on, what their hope has supposedly been put in. They don't even believe it. Moses prophesied of a prophet like himself that God would raise up one day. He says that it is to this prophet that they are to listen. Well, now here is the prophet that Moses spoke of, and they're not listening to him. They're rejecting him. The Jews studied the scriptures thinking that in them they had life and they staked their hope upon Moses. But then Jesus says that they don't even really believe him because they don't believe Jesus. It seems that their unbelief is seen in thinking that they are true law keepers. The law condemns us all as sinners. You know this. The Pharisee of Pharisees said that in Romans. 
The law reveals that we are all sinners because it reveals God's righteous requirement and the standard of perfection. The law is meant to humble us so that we would lay prostrate in sackcloth and ashes before the holiness of God. But the Pharisees, who didn't really believe Moses, they saw the righteous requirement of the law, and they said, I can do that. I can keep those laws. But God gave us the law to show us our sinfulness. The Pharisees believed the law revealed their righteousness. Do you see the point, the problem? This is the damning deceptiveness of false religion. It promises you life if you follow a set of rules that you cannot keep. If you follow these rules, you're going to have eternal life. You can turn the Christian faith into this. Do you know how? I see good Christians go to church, read their Bible, and go to small group and tithe. So I'm going to go to church, go to small group, read my Bible, and tithe. I'm a Christian. I'm following the letter of the law. But it will be that exact thing that will condemn those kinds of people on the last day. Because it will be said, did you not hear? You sat in church Sunday after Sunday. You read your Bible. You saw this truth. You were confronted with the reality of the holiness of God and your inability to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And you were unwilling to come to Him. So where are you this morning? Which one are you? Have you actually come to Jesus Or is all of your religion external? It's just stuff that I do. It keeps me busy. Or do you have the word of God in your heart? Do you read the scriptures knowing that this points to Jesus? Do you love the scriptures because you think if you study them enough, that's going to be what gives you life? Or do you love the Bible because you understand that this points you to the glory of the one and only Son of God? Which one is it, my friends? Whichever it is, I would urge you to do what Jesus said that the Pharisees don't do in verse 40. He says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Well, don't let that be you any longer. Don't be unwilling to come to Christ. Come to him. Because it's this same righteous and holy God who came in the flesh who bids us all come to Him. Let's stand. All of Scripture points to Christ. The law prefigures Christ. It's a shadow of Christ. The prophets prophesy the coming of Christ. The Gospels reveal Christ. The epistles tell us how to live in light of Christ. And the the revelation of John teaches us that Christ is coming again. When you read your Bible, read it that way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, even when it's convicting and it's searching and it reveals all of the dysfunction and sin and pride that still resides in our hearts. Lord, if there's anything 
that I could ask of us, for all, for all of us, it would be that you would mercifully destroy all of our pride. Help us to be humbled before you. Search us, Lord, that we would have true and right religion, believing in the one and only true God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.